On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. We've come to know Tom Cruise to be many things over the years. A fighter pilot, a race car driver, and a couch-jumping enthusiast. But not many would instantly jump to Green Man of the Forest in their description of him. Throw in some elves, fairies, and demons, and you've got yourself a good time. Or do you? Find out as we attempt to prove to you that 1985's legend is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, one and all, to It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. I'm your host, Jason, and we are in for a fun time tonight. Now, I am going to apologize right off the bat, uh, my dear listeners. I am coming off of a cold, so if I sound like crap, I apologize. If I sounded like crap before, well, that's just me. You'll have to deal with that. Uh, But I might be a little out of my league on this one because we have a special guest on this show. Uh, Appearing for the first time, Peter Thompson. He is the owner of Movies and Stuff. And Peter, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong here. The last bastion of movie rentals in the entire nation's capital. Peter, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay. Before we get into the movie that we are talking about here, please tell us, how is it having a video rental place in Ottawa in 2023? It's a myriad of different things. It's very challenging, but it's also extremely rewarding, as you can imagine. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you, you wonder at the time when I took over a few years ago, could I make this work? And the answer is a resounding yes. People still want the material, you know, experience of going to the video store. So I'm just really lucky. And you're right though, 2023 is uh, it's a, probably a challenging time for DVD <laughs> <laughs> rental places to be, to you be would, sure, yeah. You would have to think though, um, because we see this, you know, myriad of shows and movies that are on streaming services and then they get pulled from streaming services and the number of people that are out there is like, oh, I wish I had the DVD. Are you getting a lot of those people who would go to the store and say, you know what, this used to be on Netflix. It's not anymore. I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to watch it. I need to find it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, you have your regular clients, but then you have the clients that come in and say they just yank this off whatever platform and do you have big little lies do you have you know there's a, a a million and you know luckily we do we have a good selection and i think that's key you have to have a good collection of uh, of stock and you have to make sure that you know when they come in to get uh, big little lies probably a bad example because it's i think it's hbo and it's not going anywhere but it, you have to have the movies that people are looking for you say it's HBO and not going anywhere. Batgirl would like to have a word with you on that one. Oh, yes. True enough. Yeah. Michael Keaton, too. Eh? Oh, just, just no. No, no luck for him, I tell you. Um, and I do have to ask, though, like, do you find you get a, like a lot of cinephiles that come in and, and aside from just, you know, renting movies and buying movies and the like, do you find they just want to talk movies as well? Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. Honestly, I, I love doing that. I could talk movies for hours and hours and hours. So I, I mean, I mean, it depends on the situation, depends on what we're talking about. But I get a lot of people like that, honestly, and it's it's quite a joy. 
Well, the good thing is you came to the right place because we're going to talk for about an hour on 1985's Legend. Now, when we were first talking about you coming onto the show, I said, pick a movie so long as it kind of meets our our bad critic score criteria. What is, is it about Legend that this was the first film that came up to you? Oh, probably because it was in my, my heyday, right? I was, I was young. I was impressionable. I think I had just seen Top Gun and, uh, I wanted to see this fairy tale and, and it delivered for me personally. The sets were incredible. The makeup on Tim Curry is unreal. It's, it's, if you haven't seen the film, see it for Tim Curry alone, in my opinion. And then Mia Sarah, uh, Luminous. And I, for, for me personally, it all came together. And it was quite an experience in the theater as a, as a 10-year-old going, wow. You know, they created this world. And it feels like they created the world for me. And that was one of my first experiences in a theater anyway, seeing this kind of fantastical vision that uh, I never got to experience Star Wars too, which uh, I think in 83, I experienced Return of the Jedi, but I was just too young to see Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. So those would have been, but this happened to be the time and place where it blew my mind. You know, I'm, I was really excited when you mentioned this because this was actually a first time watch for me. I'd never seen it before. You know, it's not like I went out of my way to avoid it. It was just a matter of like, you know, it's, it's never actually sought it out. So I was really hyped to watch this and I really, really enjoyed it. You know, spoiler alert, I enjoyed it. But before we get into the breakdown of Legend, it is time to take this 1985 dark fantasy epic and trailerize it. Enter a world of light and darkness, of magic and adventure, a world where love is grand and everyone is shorter than Tom Cruise. Watch as a pre-Top Gun maverick leaps around the forest as Jack, a man who predefined the clothing choice of pandemic-era men everywhere by wearing ratty shirts that looked like they hadn't been washed in years and no pants. He's in love with Lily, a princess who wants it all. Touch the forbidden creatures, a man who would go on an underwater scavenger hunt to find a ring just to prove his love. All the pretty shiny things that darkness provides, she's high maintenance in a magical world. Together, they'll face darkness. A horny Tim Curry who just wants more horn. It's legend. Rated PG for pantless gentlemen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we joke around on the trailer eyes. We got to tear it down before we build it back up. Uh, It should also be noted, and this is going to be a a really fascinating discussion point. Uh, So Peter's memory of this movie is from the U.S. theatrical release. I watched the director's cut. They are vastly different. This is going to be very, very interesting. But let's talk about... Who is in this, all right? Uh, this film stars Tom Cruise, Mia Sarah, Tim Curry, Billy Barty, Alice Platon, David Bennett, Annabelle Lennon, and Robert Picardo. However, there is an almost starring on this one. And uh, Peter, I'm going to get your opinion on these three names here, because apparently under consideration for the role of Jack, 
were Johnny Depp, Jim Carrey, and Robert Downey Jr. Could you picture any of these guys playing Jack? Yeah, I remember reading that. Uh, not Robert Downey Jr. and not Jim Carrey. Uh, Johnny Depp, yeah, sure, why not? I, he's probably He probably would have been exactly the same as Tom Cruise at that point. Probably better, actually. He was a better actor at the time, if I recall. So that's an interesting one, though. I had forgotten about that, but I remember now that you mentioned it, reading those. The two of those names just don't fit, though. Robert Downey Jr., you know, it's, know. it's funny. Robert Downey Jr. is the name that stands out as one I actually wouldn't have minded to see in this. And oh, I, I, wouldn't mind. I, I, I go back to, to RDJ's performance in Chaplin. That there was almost not an innocence there, but there's a a wistfulness to Chaplin in, in parts of that movie anyway, especially the early life, where I'm just like, I would love to see that. I would love to see that performance translated to Jack, but I was actually quite surprised with Tom Cruise, but we'll get to that. Also, in the role of Meg Mucklebones, uh, as played by Robert Picardo, it was almost Richard O'Brien, probably best known as Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, you know what's funny? Oh, as Mega Mucklebones, I could actually kind of see it. But the- I can see it. I can see anything. I think <laughs> when you're putting them like that's that's heavily that's a heavy makeup creature, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, the swamp the swamp woman or whatever. I thought it was a, a woman, to be honest with you. But the swamp creature that comes up and grabs them that could be anybody. That could be me. Well, you know what? If, if they ever do a remake, I will sign up to be Meg Mucklebones quite happily. Um, Me too. Yeah. But yeah. apparently this is how Ridley Scott settled on Tim Curry for Darkness because he was studying Richard O'Brien. So he was watching the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Or, or, Rocky Horror Picture Show. Apologies. English is failing me today. Um, and then saw Tim Curry as Frankenfurter and said, that's got to be Darkness. I don't know how you go from Frankenfurter to darkness, but I, I, I really appreciate it. The film, of course, was directed by Ridley Scott and written by William... Uh, I'm going to apologize if I mess up this name. William Hortzberg, who wrote Falling Angel, uh, the novel, then that was turned into a movie. Legend was actually the last screenplay he would ever write. He went on to write, still write more novels, but last screenplay he would ever write. This film actually garnered a number of award nominations. Uh, It was nominated at the 59th Academy Awards for Best Makeup Lost to the Fly. It was also nominated at the 14th Saturn Awards for Best Makeup Lost to the Fly. At the 39th BAFTAs, it was was nominated for Best Costume Design Lost to the Cotton Club, Best Makeup and Hair Lost to Amadeus, and Best Special Visual Effects at Lost to Brazil. At the Venice Film Festival, Ridley Scott was nominated for the Golden Lion Award, and at the Young Artist Awards in 1987, David Bennett, uh, the guy who played Gump, was nominated for Exceptional Performance by a Young Actor, Supporting Role, Feature Film, Comedy, Fantasy, or Drama, and the film was nominated for Exceptional uh, Exceptional Feature Film, Family entertainment, fantasy, or comedy. However, it's not always the bridesmaid. Sometimes it gets to be the bride. It did win at the British Society of Cinematographers for Best Cinematography. Unfortunately, all of that did not necessarily translate at the box office. 
According to IMDb, this film had a budget of $24.5 million and, according to TheNumbers.com, had a domestic gross of only $15.5 with a worldwide gross of $23.5 million. Uh, it did hold on to the number one spot domestically when it was released in 1986, not 1985, uh, and was eventually knocked out of the number one spot by Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. Uh, but also debuting the week that it came out, April 18th, 1986, in at least domestically, uh, was Murphy's Law that debuted at number two, and Wise Guys debuted at number six. So, I mean, that's... Normally, I would say that's respectable. And considering some of the problems that they had, because while they were filming this film, the studio they were filming in burnt to the ground. They lost, like, pretty much every set. And then had to cobble whatever whatever they could to at least finish the film. But do you think that the box office is a massive disappointment considering how epic it did look? Absolutely. It's not just how it looked. It's um, what do you have here? You have Ridley Scott, who is, you know, pretty big by that point. It already directed uh, the great Blade Runner. I think, you know, an up and comer like Tom Cruise should have done a lot more than that i think yeah uh but also the critics didn't seem to like this either over at metacritic this film has a meta score of 30 and then over on rotten tomatoes the audience score sits at 73 percent which is actually really really good Not but, bad, eh? but the critics mm-hmm. a 41 percent tomatometer I'm not going to lie. I am surprised that the Metacritic score is that low down at 30. What is it though? Like your opinion, what is it that the critics aren't picking up on with this? I think this is a film that uh, a lot of critics had a good time hacking to pieces and, and maybe rightfully so. The story is, you know, let's be honest here. The story is A, a to B linear. It's good you know versus evil something happens you know the good has to triumph over evil it's not it's not a new story by any stretch of the imagination nor is it Tolkien uh, dialogue or you know really uh, the story is something that you or I could have come up with over the course of a weekend probably but I think maybe the maybe the the common movie critic and I I don't want to pigeonhole people here but they might be a little jaded and i think they may look at this as just a you know grim fairy tale that has nothing behind it but for me it it certainly did and i thought almost every element of the picture came together even though i know they had as you said the set burnt down i think tom cruise had been married recently to mimi rogers and was is it mimi rogers and i think they were no rebecca de mornay maybe they were about to get divorced and he, he was missing her and he was a lot of stuff going on um but truthfully i don't know if the critics missed anything or if maybe this was just too simple a story and and they didn't feel it was executed well enough by ridley scott to warrant a good rating well let, let's get to the the, the minutiae of this and you know little by little figure out what it is that is good about this film uh we're going to start with tom cruise who of course plays jack how was Tom Cruise in this for you? Uh, you could tell he was learning the craft at this point still, but 
I, there's a charm about that guy, whether you like him or not, where, you know, whether you agree with Scientology and I don't know many people that would agree with that, but in this film, I thought he was quite charming and he had a, an exuberance and a, you know, a charisma that came off very well to the camera. And you could, if you didn't know he was going to be a star before you knew probably around this time that this is going to be the guy for a while in Hollywood. And you know, not many people could step up in front of the camera like that and, and deliver a charismatic performance on a script that some would deem, you know, average at best with some lines in there that you probably look back on and cringe. And I thought he did. And I thought he did it quite well. I'm not going to lie. When you mentioned this film, and I saw it was Tom Cruise. I'm, I, I, I went in expecting the worst. I did. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not the biggest Tom Cruise fan. There are certain roles that I like him in, and that may just be more the movie per se. And of course, this film came out the year before Top Gun was released, but it's also after um, All the Right Moves and... Mm-hmm. Um, Risky yeah, Business? Exactly. Yeah. I really liked him in this. Like, there, there was such a... <sighs> For lack of a better term, it was a great stage performance. It really felt like you could have taken his performance of Jack in this, put it on a, a stage presentation of Legend in any UK-based theater, and it would have translated well. I did. I was not expecting that out of Tom Cruise. I really wasn't, and I am really pleasantly surprised. Like... As a matter of fact, was there one performance that wasn't good in this film? Now that I think about it, that that is hard because because the, there's there's good. a lot to it, right? There is yeah. there's so much that is good to this, like. But I think the one the the thing with Tom Cruise for me, and when he realized too that this came out in 1986, the same year as Top Gun, I wonder if it's one of those things where I mean, Top Gun was let's be honest, like that that's just a pinnacle of rah-rah macho kind of you know, pro-American yeah. kind of, and then you get this performance, which is very nuanced, very earnest, very innocent, right? It's It really shows that Tom Cruise is a good actor, very good oh, actor. Yeah. Like, I, oh, I, I'm i not going to lie. Like, this was great. I never thought I'd say that about a Tom Cruise movie, but here we are. This role for him was egoless. It was a surprise to me. I, I'm really, really impressed with this. That's probably an interesting point that you make. It's probably at a point where he didn't have a lot of ego and uh, probably transcended into the screen. Well, I think the thing, too, is as actors become almost typecast into the roles that they do, and let's be honest, you know, Tom Cruise almost got into a typecast type situation with a lot of his roles. Uh, because they expect that you hire him because you want Maverick. You hire him because you want whatever his character was in Days of Thunder, right? Um, you want him because of those roles, right? You see that with a lot. Like, you hire Christopher Walken because you want Christopher Walken. You hire Gary Sinise because you want Gary Sinise. This was not your typical Tom Cruise performance. And I love that this is out there. Like... Again, like if you love fantasy films, right? Don't go in there and say, "Oh, it's Tom Cruise and fantasy." No, it's Tom Cruise, no, exactly. and it's damn good. 
Exactly. That's that. That was my point from the word go with this film. Is what what exactly were people expecting when they chastised it? it this is a a little grim fairy tale. It's very well done. This film, of course, also marks the cinematic debut of Mia Sarah as Lily. I say cinematic debut because she had previously appeared in one episode of All My Children. Uh, but this is her big screen debut. Uh, how was Mia Sarah for you? She was all right. Uh, I remember at the beginning thinking that she was quite stiff. But when she is allowed to sort of show off her... Um, dark side in a few of the scenes you can start to see that she's going to be a force to be reckoned with and she'd have to share the screen later on with you know matthew broderick one of the biggest films of that era and she did it well and and the more this movie progressed and uh, i remember thinking this the more she seemed to completely in uh sort of explore that role and and it became something that you can't imagine somebody else playing. And I think that's the ultimate compliment for an actor or actress. I can't see anybody else doing what she did with that innocence. It, it's interesting too, because when you think about when this movie came out, you know, it, it came out after movies like crawl and the dark crystal and the never ending story. Um, crawl is the one that kind of stands out for me because, you know, you could almost see a Lizette Anthony, take on that role but i think the thing with with what mia sarah did with lily is that there's a lot of different emotions and character aspects kind of at play with with her character right you know she goes to touch the unicorn which you know jack has told her don't touch the don't freaking touch the unicorn right that's is 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 forbidden right there's a big old should be a big old sign that don't touch you know don't pet the animals here but she goes yeah. anyways. Not that she actually like necessarily touches it kind of thing because, you know, the the unicorn gets spooked before she gets to that point. But, you know, when she comes back and Jack's like really pissed at her, she's like, I don't care. And then, of course, like there, there's the whole she teeters towards the darkness during the, the dance scene in the. By the way, this film is almost and I'm doing my math here. It is almost 40 years old. So if you haven't seen it by now, that's on you guys. So we're going to spoil the crap out of it. Um, When she's uh, doing the dance with this, this, you know, shadowy figure in the, you know, by the big fireplace and all that. And she actually not, not necessarily succumbs, but becomes that creature as well. Like becomes it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, The two become one. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, the fact that, you know, she, you know, basically tries to gain darkness's trust by saying that she wants to be the one to kill the unicorn and slit the throne. And it's like, you're not quite sure what, you know, what's going to happen. Like, like there's a lot of nuance and yes, there are times when you sit there and go, okay, maybe you could see it's a cinematic debut, but really like I mentioned that Tom Cruise would be great on stage with this. Mia Sarah would have been, Oh yeah, 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 absolutely a great stage performance. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about, too. I was alluding to those scenes. That's where she became like a bona fide star. She could have been a star. I don't know exactly why she sort of slipped away from the spotlight. But those scenes when she's dancing with the dark shadow and just so it's so well shot as well. And she she really hits it out of the park. 
Now, that being said, she has pretty much retired from acting. And if I remember reading correctly, uh, I think she actually co-runs a production company as well. So she's not necessarily, I don't think, completely out of the business, but I think she's out of the acting game, which is a shame because she is actually quite good in this. want to move on to David Bennett, uh, who played Gump. Now, it should be noted that apparently uh, David Bennett's voice was overdubbed by Alice Platon because I guess his accent was a little too thick for the actual, um, for, right, yeah. for, for the ADR. Um, but how was Gump for you? This is one of the keys to the film, though, in my opinion. He was fant- he's fantastic. This guy is, there, there are parts when you, it could have gone so sideways because he's telling Tom Cruise, he's actually uh, scolding him in some scenes. And it looks like a kid scolding, you know, a much older guy. And you think, eh. But this guy manages, David Bennett managed to pull it off perfectly. And it goes that way the whole movie. So this guy is like the heartbeat of the film, really. And it's funny to say that because he's never run on to become anything too big. But this was quite a good role for him, in my opinion. I think there was only one point where I'm just like, okay, what are they doing with this guy? And it's when he challenges uh, Jack to solve his riddle um, or face death, you know, by, by, by him playing the death song, Um, you know, and, and Jack guesses it, that it's, it's the blue bell. That's the, that's the, the answer to the riddle. And then he throws this, you know, very over the top tantrum and you know basically you know lies down on the snow and like okay what is this and then but you're right like up to that point there's this menace in his eyes he he doesn't look like he's supposed to be a menacing character but there's there is a menace there like well, i think i think he is a menacing character i think he's very unhappy with what jack and and Lily did very unhappy. Yeah, and I, I, it's it's interesting because then, of course, he goes on to help Jack and try to solve, you know, fix everything. Uh, yeah. And you see, like the 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 camaraderie and the almost the leadership, because of course Jack does not know violence, you know. And Gump's like, you you will you'll you're going to learn, you're going to freaking learn a little yeah. bit of violence yeah. here. Um, oh, yeah. And that, that's the other thing about Jack. You have Tom Cruise playing a character that doesn't know violence. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, it's only good. Yeah, only good and only, you know, kindness. And how, does he, how do you fight a devil like darkness in that, you know? Yeah. Like, even the scene with Meg Mucklebones, the uh, big tall, like we were talking about, about her earlier. Um, the fact that he tries to, and this is actually something that's, that's different from the U.S. theatrical version to the director's cut. In the the U.S. theatrical version, um, he distracts her enough to, you know, so he can just kind of, you know, basically chop her head off with the sword. In the director's cut, he basically convinces her, you know, Meg Mucklebones to uh, basically admire herself in the shield um, try, basically tries to charm his way out of this and talk his way out of this. And when he realizes that, you know what, she's still going to try and eat me no matter what I do. Um, so it actually, I think, develops Jack's character a little bit more. Um, again, yeah, I guess that's an interesting way, really, Scott tried to further 
the development of that character for sure. I've I've never seen the one that you saw. I, I wish I had actually in retrospect going into this, but it may you know what it makes for an interesting conversation mm-hmm. though to see the the differences because I had never seen that scene, the tantrum scene you're talking about. Uh, yeah, because because I, uh, I, I think that scene is actually drawn out uh, a little bit more in the director's cut as well because Jack initially tries to lie to Gump about what happened and then tells him the truth so Gump's Gump's even more pissed off at this point I don't remember any tantrum like that in the original one I think that's all sort of uh, director's cut added footage that he had on the cutting room floor yeah it's 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 quite possible it's it, it would be fascinating to watch these two films I don't know whether you want to do it side by side or back to back kind of thing because, uh, well, a it's going to sound very differently because it's two different soundtracks entirely, but it would it would definitely be curious to run them back to back and see the differences. Um, For but- none nothing else but to see a master director, or a good director, and what he did he change the story and how did he change it? It would be interesting from a, almost a nerd point of view on film to see what's the director's cut versus the original. What is he trying to, to add in there story-wise, you know? Yeah, and the fact that, you know, a lot of the changes stemmed from uh, initial test scores, from, from test audiences. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why the, the score changed from the Jerry Goldsmith score to Tangerine Dream. You know, it's like, all right, well, let's change this and, you know, lighten the mood a little bit and make it a bit more adventurous. And if you listen to the Tangerine Dream score, you know, it does have that more fantastical adventure kind of thing where Jerry Goldsmith's score is much more epic and uh, sweeping and fantastical. It's it is two different scores, but they're both great in their own right. And I guess, you know, a lot of it will probably go down to your personal preference and what you prefer. And the tone of the film that you're watching, which is probably, it sounds like it's different in tone. Oh, yeah. Well, the two films. I think Ridley Scott has gone on record and saying, like, you know, the, this director's cut is kind of his, he wanted to make a dark fantasy. He wanted to make not, not everything be so spoon fed good versus evil. He wanted nuance. He wanted uh, subtleties. He wanted these characters to not be so black and white. Interesting. Interesting. And yet it's pretty, pretty A to, to be though still good versus evil. There's nothing you can change about that. But I'd, yeah, I'd be interested to go back and see what he he added in in terms of nuances for sure. Yeah, It's it's funny too, because apparently like uh, he and uh, the writer William Horston uh, were going back and forth during the filming of Blade Runner about this script. Apparently like the yeah. original treatment is like, would have worked out to be like a two and a half, three hour film kind of thing. Uh, and they they had to pull out a lot of you know at least in the script, just a lot that was, I guess at the time unfilmable. Um, there's actually a quote from Neil Gaiman, who basically did a, a a look back review of this film and said that you know the script would have made a wonderful book, and I could yeah, very easily see that a thousand page big sprawling world building book would have been so awesome i thought that at the time and i think that now i would love to get my hands on that hey pantheon listeners christian swain here you caught me just finishing up some editing on getting real with john and beth i want to share my first experience with factor meals for you i think you'll find this interesting because i bet the same thing happens to you 
I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right, I'm going to put these two characters together here because they're kind of inseparable. Billy Barty as Screwball and Cork Hubbard as Brown Tom. Um, basically the two, I, I guess, trolls or whatever that, that were accompanying Gump. How are these guys, like basically the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of the forest for you? Oh, I love those guys. I mean, what more can you say? That's exactly what they are. That's They add some comic relief in this film as well when this film is getting a little heavy-handed if you will or a little heavy period and you know they, they were just so much fun to watch maybe i'm gushing over this film too much but again remember when i watched this and subsequently that this really had a huge impression and those those guys made a huge impression on me personally okay i i, I need to ask this because i could not get it out of my head while i was watching this Billy Barty as Screwball. Did it not look like he took the makeup that he wore in this film and basically brought it with him when he went to go do 1987's Masters of the Universe? Yeah, I thought the same, yeah. I don't think they deviated very much, really. Hey, when it works, don't fix it, you know? Screwball and Gwildor, one and the yeah. same. Pretty <laughs> much, right? Like, seriously, too. They, they didn't put too much extra effort into that at all, yeah? it's it, it, i just find it funny it, but but it is like you i think you're right though it does add a little bit of levity because and again remember i'm watching the director's cut on this so it is a bit more of a dark fantasy than it than more of a fantasy adventure film that the that the theatrical release was you at times need to take a breath and have a laugh Right. You at times need to take your foot off the pedal because there are some heavy moments in this film. Yeah. Yeah. I think back to the the dark castle with the people being tortured by those big galoots with uh, those hammers. And, you know, you can't you can't always make fantasy where it's where it's that dark and that brooding without having some levity. You're just going to fail. Right. Yeah, I I think. and, And that's. You, know, you you mentioned Star Wars at the beginning, and there are times when you could sit there and see some of the influence. That, I mean, I mean, even Star Wars isn't original. It's all the hero's journey, right? But mm-hmm. you could see how Screwball and Brown Tom are kind of the C-3PO and R2-D2, right? Yeah, and, for sure. And yeah. even C-3PO uh, and R2-D2 were kind of the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of a galaxy far, far away. So it does make sense. Annabelle Lanyon, who played Una, uh, the the fairy in this, I, I'm really curious on your take on this one here. How was Una for you? Oh, it's a crazy character. It's a very layered character, in my opinion. It's uh, first of all, she's got this this innocence to her for for most of the film until uh, you get to the dungeons in the dark castle, and then she turns into uh, Lily and is really pissed off that Jack isn't into her the way he's into Lily. And, you know, there's nothing, it's a pretty, pretty scary moment there because she can pretty much drown them. She can just leave and that'd be the end of that. So she, she carried a, a pretty strong uh, uh, sort of presence throughout that whole film. And that was compounded in that scene. And I, I thought she was excellent personally. And, Again, I didn't think there was a bad performance in this, but I thought that performance in itself was was excellent. That moment really showed that, look, you know, I'm not to be messed with. I often wonder, 
when when you when you watch some of these roles and watch some of these characters evolve on the screen and i i often wonder if maybe subconsciously or maybe consciously they kind of were inspiration for future characters in different films in this case una very much reminded me of what julia roberts did as tinkerbell in hook and how you know tink really does love peter he you know she she does um but she knows that he can't really return that love to her you know that that's just not there that that's not that relationship this is the same thing right una loves jack una will be anything that jack wants even if una has to be lily to get jack's love that's pretty creepy eh? yeah right uh also wonder woman 1984 oh dear god but anyways (laughs) that that is another episode that that i'm sure will happen somewhere down the road but (laughs) yeah but una (laughs) you're right una in that moment when jack says no it has to be lily the i cannot i can't be with you as lily because you're not lily right there's that turn and you don't oh, yeah. know if she's going to, you know, if it's going to turn sour, right? Oh, like, yeah. I love that there's a lot of, you know, not everything is cut and dry with this. No, not everything sure. is black and white. These characters have depth. These characters have a lot to them. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a minor role, but it adds something to the hero's journey in this and you're not quite sure if the companion is going to be there with you at the end yeah that's the beautiful thing about these fellowship style fantasy films if they're done right though right it's the supporting characters that'll take jack from a to z and get get him from the beginning to the end and if those supporting characters suck then you're going to lose interest in the film halfway through right and i thought to their credit you know that whole band was very very entertaining Okay, we need to talk about Tim Curry as Darkness. Probably the most iconic imagery, or at least iconic looking characters of the entire decade of film. How was Tim Curry for you? How How is that, though? Someone has to explain this to me. So I, I'm here I am, a nerd 10-year-old, going to see this motion picture, and this character blew my mind like literally let's forget about this movie i like this movie a lot whatever this character is incredible tim curry is amazing and yet now it's revered as one of the great characters of the 80s but when it came out nobody gave gave a toss you know i don't understand that uh, and i'd at some point i'd love to figure out why we start to revere things, you know, 20, 30, 40 years later, because this was a role that should have been nominated for an Oscar, in my opinion. I know they they were nominated for an Oscar for the makeup, but underneath that makeup is a, you know, glowering, terrifying, angry, playful Lord of Darkness. And it's it's a performance that I think should have been up for an Oscar that year. I I think you you nailed it right yes the makeup was and rightfully so 
uh, acknowledged on many different levels. Despite the fact that apparently those horns were horrible on Tim Curry's neck, uh, just because they were so not properly weighted. Um, But there is, there's, there's such a, he's trying to convey this swagger as he's trying to convince Lily to be his. And anyone else, I think, in that makeup, like, sure, they'd look the part, and Darkness would still, you know, be this iconic-looking character, but not so much in the personality. That's the thing. The eyes, eh? Oh, I I think it was... um, Michael Westmore is the guy's name who did a lot of the makeup for Star Trek. And if I remember correctly, uh, sorry, uh, Next Gen, that, that, that being, uh, if I remember correctly, he said once in an interview, and I, I could be misremembering this, so please don't at me on this one if I'm wrong, but one of the key things when it came to Star Trek makeup, especially for Next Gen, was that if you can't see the eyes, then you can't see the personality. Mm-hmm. You saw the personality in darkness. You saw, you know, the anger and the longing and the loneliness and the, you know, the, the, there's so much to this. It's not just, um, it's not just a big, bad, horny villain, right? No, no. Horny being, you know, with the horns on his head, right? It's not, (laughs) it's not just, you know, discount demon. Darkness is 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 a nuanced villain i think more so than people really realize and i I, we've said it on the show a number of times you know any superhero film is weighted by how good the villain is and i think you can say the same thing about a lot of uh, fantasy films as well if the villain is great the rest of the film can suffer and there's still something salvageable about the film because the villain really sets the tone. And I think there's there's where a lot of those fantasy films of the time falter in comparison to. Like, I'll admit, you know, when Crawl came out on in theaters, and I know this is the second time I've mentioned Crawl, but I watched Crawl day in, day out, whenever I could, whenever it was on like First Choice or the Super Channel or whatever one it was on at the time, you know, because, you know, you know, he had the glaive and it was this cool weapon and it was like basically like a throwing star for fantasy films. But then you go back and watch it now, right? And it's this, you know, A, nowhere near Ridley Scott cinematography or set design or whatever the case may be. But the villain, it's just this like glob of makeup seemingly and you don't really feel that connection, right? Here, darkness dances on the screen, right? Just even the way he would like lean up against the table when he's trying to get uh, Lily to sit down in the chair, right? It's, there's just, oh, Tim Curry absolutely nailed this one. Oh, yeah. There's really a lot going on with that character. Yeah, you're right about that. The eyes, Tim Curry. I go back to if you've ever seen Clue. Oh, I love I know Clue. So. I absolutely I love too. Clue. Honestly, I, I love that movie. I could have put that one. I don't think that was critically revered either. But if you watch that film, you see his eyes. He's got the eyebrows, those mischievous eyebrows a lot. And he's looking, you know, hey, look, you know, something's afoot here. And he brought that to. Uh, legend and Lord of Darkness character 
in spades, I thought, where at times he's he's being really coy and really mischievous. And, you know, I think you're right. Without With somebody else in that role, this movie could have been uh, just a cheap B film. But he just... And some of the... I know I rag on Ridley Scott once in a while. Or I do. I do rag on him once <laughs> in a while because I think he's hit and miss. Like, I think sometimes he makes these beautiful films and sometimes he's a hack but he had some shots in there of him with his cape blowing you know and the full body makeup and everything that i think are on par with any fantasy film Mm -hmm. i i will say again this is the difference between uh the version you've watched and the version i watched is that in the director's cut you don't actually see darkness's face until like an hour in I know in the in the theatrical cut, there's like the scene of him sitting in the chair and his nails are green and the eyes are green. That scene, right right? yeah, that scene's not there at all, right? Interesting. How do they how do they start it? Then? So the soliloquy the soliloquy is there, right? And the, the talking is there as he's commanding Blix, but it's all done like over the shoulder. It's all done, you know, with Blix's reaction to what he's saying as opposed to seeing darkness actually talking. So it makes the the reveal, right? Yeah, so when Lily sees yeah. him, it's our it's our first time seeing him. Interesting. Again, yeah, I can see that working as well. Yeah. Um, before we move on to uh, to Alice Platon, who played Blix, I I have to ask. Okay, I was watching a video, the the, the one of the Watch Mojo ones about top top Tim Curry performances, and of course the top three were, as I remember correctly, Darkness. Pennywise and Frankenfurter. So I'm going to put those three characters to you. If you're ranking those three characters, those three Tim Curry performances, Frankenfurter, Pennywise, and Darkness, how do you rank them? Oh, that's interesting because they're completely different, but eerily the same. Um, I'd probably go with. Oh, it's really hard because I like the It character a lot, uh, Pennywise. But no, I'd no, I'd probably put as much as I love Rocky Horror, I'd probably go with Darkness because uh, I'm a sucker for that cool imagery, and when you can act on top of that, you know what? You get number one in my book. It's almost like you take the the menace of Pennywise and the swagger of Frankenfurter. Put I was going to say that. But yeah, <laughs> put, yeah. put it together, couple, yeah. stick a couple horns on it, and all of a sudden you got darkness. Um, That's exactly what it is. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, Alice Platon, who played Blix, the, the goblin minion of darkness. Didn't, you must have loved this character. Although, again, you saw a different cut than I did, but you must have loved this character. This character is, uh, you know, your typical badass. <laughs> no rules. I'm going to start a fire with my little wand here without thinking about the prince of darkness who might be watching uh he's so subservient to the prince of darkness or darkness or whatever and then he's so playing by his own rules the rest of the movie i thought i thought the contrast was fantastic what i think i like most about blix is that it's not a bumbling minion right blix isn't played for laughs you know, you've got Screwball and Brown Tom for that. Blix is there to mess up. Um, but to that token as well, I like the fact that there's that one point where they're, they're, 
they've got the horn and they're sitting around the fire kind of thing. And Blix yeah. is openly pontificating, you know, using the power uh, for itself and and basically overruling darkness. And then all of a sudden, like, hey, and he's behind me. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. But but that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, but the thing is, Blix also encourages uh, the the minions that are there with him, basically the discount Guar band, and you know they they're all riled up like, yeah, Blix is going to be all powerful, and and he's he's gone. They they, yeah. they, they took him to go make him into pie. Um, yeah. But yeah, Blix. Yeah. There's a couple of really good uh, shots by Ridley Scott in that when he's uh, coming towards the unicorn to cut off the unicorn horn there through the snow and slow motion that are really cool shots. So we have talked about the cinematography. And of course, this film did win at the British uh, Cinematography Awards that year. Um, what is it about this film that stands out as far as what Ridley Scott brought to this? Well, you know, Ridley Scott apparently has always been a, a, a guy who wants perfection. And you can see in a lot of these shots, especially uh, not just the, the castle, but the countryside where Lily goes to meet, I can't remember her name, in that little cottage. She's eventually, I think, frozen to death at some point. Oh, Nell, as played by Tina Martin. Right, that's it. Uh, that cottage always got my fancy. That is really well shot, that whole scene um, with intricate details that you know, you could have, you could be on set and you could say, you know what, don't worry about that rolling pin or whatever. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. But when you put it in, it, it, Ridley Scott has created a world outside of just, you know, the castle and the stream where you see Jack and Lily at the beginning. He's created from, instead of just point A to B, he's created the in between as well. And I think he probably had to fight really hard to get that vision across at some points he probably had to convince his cinematographer at points like look this is what we need and he probably had to convince the studio look i need extra money to do this but those little details i think i, I i'm not going to name blade runner because blade runner to me is perfect it's you don't touch that movie it's perfect but there are there's a lot that he probably brought with him from alien and and blade runner and movies and even uh, there's one before that too, which I, the duelists, I, I'm sure he brought all his experiences there and, and shot this film uh, to create a world knowing full well that he'd be compared to, you know, Lord of the Rings, Tolkien works and stuff like that, but never once backing down on his vision. And I respect him for that big time because that had a profound effect on me as a, as a younger man. And it probably still does say I'd have to rewatch it again, but, having watched it 50 times in my life, at least that had a profound effect. The world building in that, uh, while not epic in scope is beautifully done. We have to talk about the music. We do because this, this was, you know, in comparison, like we've, we've talked about some minor differences and a couple of scenes that were in different versions and, you know, not in the other kind of thing. The biggest glaring difference between the theatrical release as far as domestically and the director's cut is the score. The original theatrical U.S. release is the Tangerine Dream, right? That, that, that very German electronic sound and, you know, there are parts where 
it really works. I, I, I will admit there are parts where Tangerine Dream nailed it. But I think overall, it needed a more sweeping orchestra. And when you listen to the Jerry Goldsmith um, score and the fact that there were songs with lyrics written for this movie that were used in the actual like i i get i get there's the john anderson um uh i can't remember the name of the song right now um is your love strong enough is no no that? that was the brian ferry one. Oh, that's brian ferry yes yeah with uh with david brian gilmore is- from pink floyd on guitar yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um yes. yeah i think that the sun always loves oh, you or well. something like that um yes i should know that because that's one of my favorite parts of the film that, yeah. anyway. that whole scene yeah. is like that whole music cut is gone from the from the from the director's cut so in all that we've talked about and i know you haven't seen the director's cut but in all that we've talked about how was the tangerine dream score for you it's as important as any element in that film what we and i've heard the jerry goldsmith theme i listened to it on youtube and it's wonderful it's, it's beyond adequate it's per, it, it could have been used easily but remember i i in the theater i saw this cut with tangerine dream and subsequently saw it 50 more times in the next you know 10 years or whatever i think it's akin to uh, removing vangelis from blade runner personally and putting in a sweeping score and no thank you i'm really glad you brought up uh vangelis and blade runner um with Blade Runner, I, I, I completely agree. The Vangelis score is perfection for that. Absolute perfection. Um, but that fits more of the style, right? When you take a look at Legend, I, I, I went and I looked at scenes with the Tangerine Dream score in it, and it just didn't mesh with me. And maybe it's because... It's, you know, it's a fantasy film and I loved that, you know, it had this sweeping orchestral score um, with a lot of, uh, there's a lot layered into that score. Um, and the, honestly, I have not seen the U.S. theatrical version. I have not watched all of the Tangerine Dream score in context. But one of the, again, one of the biggest differences, aside from the ending, and we'll talk about the ending in a second here, is is the scene where the this black clad figure starts dancing with Lily in order to try to, t- you know, turn her to the dark side before darkness tries to win her over. The Tangerine Dream score, it's okay. But the Jerry Goldsmith score for that, the the music starts light and and very not waltzy but definitely very, you know, fantastical. But as the the dance gets more and more closer to Lily turning to the darkness, it it becomes a much more menacing dance, and I think there's a bit more character to that song. Yeah, I think he had two opportunities. I I, I know what you're talking about, and it's a it's a good piece. Uh, I think there's very few instances where Ridley Scott uh, looked in the editing bay and said, "This is a huge sprawling scene that I need." a big orchestra to work with. And I think the ending would have been one, which is why they removed, would they remove the Brian Ferry? You have to remind me. I, I can't, I'm pretty sure they removed the Brian Ferry unless they left it in the credits. Uh, I'll, I'll admit, once the credits started, I was out. So, 
Yeah, fair. No, that's fair. I think at, from the point where he, you know, sort of things are happening, he's break, he's broken the ice to go get the, the ring and it becomes a sweeping scene. At that point, I think that Jerry Goldsmith would work perfectly. And I also think what you're talking about in the uh, with Dancing with the Shadow figure works perfectly because those are, as you said, sweeping scenes. They're power. They're you know the the armies fighting in Lord of the Rings. There, there's there's real power in that. While the rest of it is is in my opinion mostly uh, sort of one on one, smaller in scope, if you will. And I think that's why Tangerine Dream worked for me so well because I could it, it resonated. The sound the, the Tangerine Dream wrote this score that that really reverberates through the smaller scenes, uh, no matter what instrument they appear to be using. And I think that was that's my only complaint. I mean, they could have incorporated both and it would have been out of this world, but you take one completely away, unfortunately, and you're left with, you know, just the one experience or the other. I would love, because because we are coming up on the 40th anniversary of this movie, I would love for them to release some definitive collector set with the different versions, like all all of them. Like there was the U.S. theatrical release, there was the European theatrical release, and then there was the director's cut. I would love a box set with all of the men, so you you could sit and you could watch and you could compare. And you know, like I, I think with the with the director's cut, Ridley Scott's finally got what he wanted. Um, but it, it would Cruise be curious, too. yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because Tom Cruise has come out and said the director's cut is the one to watch. Oh, Cruz hated the other cut. <laughs> I, I know he did. It, I'm embarrassed too when I when I read those comments. Cause it's like okay, because I'm I'm really supporting that cut of it, and you you really didn't like it, did you? Well, I mean, Cruz didn't. I still haven't watched it yet, but I would definitely no Cruz. Yeah, no, yeah, not you. I mean, Cruz in this, <laughs> in this instance, you 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 can have your opinion on it when you see it. I think you might enjoy it as well, but Cruz didn't. That's for sure. The other thing, too, that, that's really different, aside from uh, the music, is the ending. So in the U.S. theatrical release, um, uh, Jack wakes up Lily, shows that you know he, he went and got the ring, and the two of them run off together into the forest to be happily married because, of course, she throws this ring into the pond and said, you know, whoever gets that ring, I'm going to marry. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, thanks for that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't have just tossed it, you know, at the edge of the water. You yeah, know? Exactly. yeah. 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 Um, but in the theatrical cut or sorry, in the in the director's version, um, Lily wakes up, um, doesn't believe when Jack says it was all a dream and everything's OK. And. You know, she she tells him that she loves him, but cannot take him away from the forest. That's where he belongs. They they love each other, but they're not going to run off together to be married. Um, like that's so the, it's almost like a platonic love. Where are you running off to, though? I don't. I, I didn't see your version, but where are they running off to? Uh, well, that that is the question, right? Like the in big the city. I- <laughs> we're, we're running off to Vegas. We're going to elope. Well, that's uh, it. We're in a shotgun wedding here, yeah. <laughs> um, but I ask you, like, I, and I recognize you haven't seen the director's cut, but hearing the difference between those two endings, where Lily and Jack run off to be together, or the ending where Lily and Jack love each other, but they're going to love each other on their own terms and not try to change each other, but still be 
you know, together in, in spirit as opposed to in person, which ending do you think you would appreciate more? Uh, that's, it's a tough question. I guess it depends on, on the flow of the film, uh, the flow of the director's cut. I, this is a fairy tale though. And it really is in every aspect. It's got the wicked villain. It's got the, you know, wide eyed hero and the innocent girl who gets, you know, you know, taken by the bad guy. It's a fairy tale from start to finish. So I, I don't think you need to go and, and really mess with that ending and talk about, you know, let's just be friends for now. I think you just, you just ended the way he ended it the first time. They're, they're going to be together. They fought pretty hard. He dove after that ring and could have broken his neck for the love of beans. I think it's, it's fine if they go and uh, be together at that point. Okay, before we get to our MVPs of this film, the internet has spoken with a few comments here. Uh, actually, there's a few comments on this one here. Uh, the What's Streaming Podcast just chimed in with Love This Movie. Also, uh, the Sleevy G Podcast chimed in with I Still To This Day Think Tim Curry Played The Devil in This Movie. Um probably not wrong mm-hmm. no uh, I, th- I think that's close yeah yeah uh dan allard uh chimed in with tim curry's iconic makeup and performance were beyond brilliant adel lakani has chimed in with legend is a throwback i definitely need to revisit i still have some flash memories of seeing it as a kid but don't remember too well uh do go watch it but you know now you have to decide which version you're going to watch oh both why yeah, not exactly right take it all why in not? The the Doom Generation podcast chimed in with, we love it. It was one of our earliest episodes. Tim Curry can even make a demon sexy. Uh, Hells yes. And PJU2 over on uh, Twitter has chimed in with, I thought Tim Curry and Mia Sarah were amazing. I thought the story was cute. Could it have been better? Yes, but it was fun. I liked the score too. Also, some of the makeup and costumes were great. The character of Gump was cool too. So basically across the board, people have, you know, profess the you know, real you know a love of this film whether it's uh, the makeup and the design uh tim curry mia sarah like there's a lot to love in this film but it's time to narrow it down to one okay so peter i'm gonna ask you here who is your mvp of legend well it would come down to two choices you'd have to remind me who did the set design uh, for it because the set design is wonderful. So either the set design, I guess three choices, the makeup or Tim Curry. I think I'd go with Tim Curry because when I think of Legend, the first thing I think of is him with his makeup and his you know eyes, his glowing eyes and his hooves for gosh sake and his horns. I, I, I think he's the MVP and quite easily. Tim Curry was definitely on my short list for uh, for MVP, and it's freaking Tim Curry, so he's probably going to be on my short list for any movie he's probably in. Uh, Mia Sarah was also shortlisted for me. The fact that this is her cinematic debut and she pulls off that performance, like kudos to her. Uh, I wish she was, you know, still acting these days. But my MVP is is Ridley Scott behind the camera. This film is epic from the cinematography to the set design to even the nuance to some of these characters right they could have been two-dimensional but they're not like there's a lot to these characters and when you again 
I got to go back to crawl here, probably because I watched it recently. But when you take a look at some of those fantasy movies of the time, not all of them hold up well. Crawl definitely does not look that good when you're watching it in 2023. And I loved that film as a kid. There are some of these films where you just look at it and go, oh, that is some really nasty green screen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the difference, too. Yeah. It must be. This film, because it's physical sets, because it's physical makeup, because they didn't try to CGI in too, too much, um, or at least VFX at the point, right? Because, of course, it's not computer graphics at this point. It's probably all that Apple money he got from doing that uh, that commercial there, the 1984 commercial. Um, But this film should be almost a case study in how practical effects and sets will stand the test of time better than any green screen, better than any CGI, really better than anything that's not really there. Like, we've come a long way in how we do these virtual sets and like this, you know, 360 sight curtain that they're shooting you know uh marvel and star wars movies in now like it's we have come a long way from some of these films this film alone shows that when you have a practical set practical effects real makeup real people in that makeup no matter what you can look back at almost 40 years later and it stands the test of time. Yeah. Peter, nice intimacy, dude. Eh? Peter, thank you so much for chiming in on this show. Now, before we go, I want to give you the microphone here. I want to give you the floor. Please let us know about movies and stuff, where we can find it, and how, how we can uh, find you on the internet and in person. Oh, yeah. Anytime you want to drop by, I'm at 1787 Kilbourne. It's a little store packed with, I don't know, 15,000 movies, 12,000 for rent and many others for sale. And, you know, I love, I love movies. I really do. And I've always, I always have, and I always will. So I'll always be there. And if you want to check us out, check us out at moviesandstuff.com and you should be able to scroll through. You know, I think we have a thousand criterions, which I'm very proud of at this point. I've really... I really love, you know, uh, diving into the world of foreign film if I can. So you can check out a lot of those. And yeah, I just appreciate, this was really fun, actually. This was a really fun time. And uh, if you want to drop me a line, you can do that uh, at moviesandstuff613 at gmail.com or come and see me, yeah. Peter, this has been so much fun. You have an open invitation on this show anytime you want to join back in. O-Town represent. I'm so happy to have you on the show. And to you, our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of It's Not That Bad. Now, you guys know the drill. If there is a movie out there that you think is unfairly maligned or you think is so bad that there's no way in hell that we can find anything good to say about it, hit us up on Twitter at NotThatBadCast over on Facebook at facebook.com slash notthatbadcast or go over to our website at notthatbadcast.com there you can actually chime in on some of the upcoming films that we do have coming up so we want to hear more from you guys uh, because that, that makes it so much more fun until next time I'm Jay 
He's Peter. You guys are awesome. This is It's Not That Bad. Take care. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.